it's not very often that I get to interview a CEO of a large software company on this podcast. And I had the opportunity to interview Henry Schack, CEO and founder at Zoom Info. And we got into some really cool stuff that I'm excited to share with you. But my name is Jason Bay. Welcome to Blissful Prospecting. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I have conversations with top reps, sales leaders, and other experts to teach you how to turn complete strangers into paying customers. So today, again, we're talking to Henry, and we got into a bunch of things uh, today I think you're really going to like. Uh, we talked about practice. One thing that I learned about Henry is this dude is just relentless when it comes to practice. I'm talking every conversation. If he can prepare for it, he does. So he's going to talk about how he prepares for big meetings with uh, clients if he's engaged in the, you know, a sales call. And helping one of the account executives, he talks about you know board meetings, uh, internal meetings, whatever it might be, his process for preparation, how he gets in flow, how he prepares for them, how he thinks about the other person, the outcomes, etc. We talked a lot about as an executive what it's like being a prospect for him and what he likes and doesn't like and what drives him crazy. And I think there'd be some surprises in there. One thing that he really cares about is knowing what's best in class. What do the best companies that use your software, what are they doing? What can I learn from them? He's always wanting to know what he can learn and implement. And we talked about a lot of his, you know, kind of, you know, parts of his personal life too. How, you know, how he makes big decisions, his routines, how he takes care of himself, um, how he reduces stress, what he does when he doesn't feel motivated or feeling like doing something. Um, we talked about how he makes hard decisions. He's got a really cool process around that too. So we get into a bunch. I think you're really going to enjoy. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Henry. So you're a very interesting person to research because there's uh there's like a lot of stuff out there about you. It's like, you know, where do you start, you know, kind of thing. But um, I would like to kind of start, if you could, like with your background, it, like, how do you get into what you're doing now? And especially when I think of Zoom Info, I think of sales and your background, it doesn't look like, correct me if I'm wrong, is in sales, at least not directly. I'm sure you were doing a lot of, you know, quote unquote selling, but how do you get into you know, running a business like this and, and what was some of the, I guess, experience prior to that, that you had that was like, you know, I think there's something here. Yeah. So I actually worked for a similar company, uh, when I was mm -hmm. in college, it was my first job after my first year in college, uh, I took it on in the summer and it was me and the CEO of the company and the CEO sat right outside, uh, my office and he took, eight sales calls a day. And, and actually when we first worked there, it wasn't, it was one office. He was like basically in that chair away from me. And so I just heard yeah. him pitch over and over and over and over and over again. And then when he would done, would be done pitching, oftentimes I then heard the fax machine start going and an order would come through that the person he just finished talking to uh, would send over a fax to buy a $18,000 subscription to what was then called iProfile. 
And so I had a front row seat to SaaS sales in 2001, which in 2001, you know, that's two years post Salesforce being launched. And we were selling the SaaS solution to technology companies. Um, and I got to hear sort of exactly how that sales process went. The best thing I learned from that is at one point I was doing sales there. And I remember my first call kind of three years into this job. I was like, it's going to be so easy. I've heard him say it probably, you know, a thousand or 2000 times. I've heard him say the same pitch over and over. I would make fun of the pitch like at home with my girlfriend or my friends, like, and it's, and I went to say it on the first call and it sounded terrible. Like it was so, I was so embarrassed by like how bad the words coming out of my mouth sounded, how, how little confidence I had in saying them years of hearing this guy say the same pitch over and over and over again. And I couldn't get it out of my mouth. And I remember when we first started training the sales teams here, I would tell them like, look, I don't care how much you practice it in your head. You need to say those words out loud. You need to say them to your friends and your family. You need to record yourself saying them out loud. You need to call somebody and tell them. Because the the act of getting the words to come out of your mouth is very different than you just saying the words in your head. Um, so it's a big sales lesson I learned there. But ultimately, I learned how to sell in that job. So that when we started Zoom Info, which was called Discover Org uh, when we founded it, um, I had a really good sense for how sales processes worked. I heard all of the negotiations, so I understood back and forth how that went. I had this strong foundation in how to sell software because I had been there at iProfile and watched it happen um, and then was involved in it myself while I was there. So um, I knew the importance of it. He told me once, uh, my boss there told me once, you know, when people become CEOs, many, many, many of them were chief revenue officers or heads of sales before because everybody loves the guy who can bring money in the door. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. The person who's responsible for growing the business is almost always the person most revered by the company. Yeah. There's so much we can get into there. You mentioned practice. And this is something that is interesting because most of the sales teams that I work at, some at very large companies, they practice on their prospects. That's the first <laughs> the first time they try something is in a live situation where there's really high stakes. How do yeah. you, whether in the context of sales or just other stuff that you do as a CEO, like how do you think about practice? Where does that fit into like so your- this is a- this is a great example. First of all, I practice most of the things that you hear me say out loud have been practiced at one time or another. Um, I've said them out loud to somebody else who in a less um, lights camera action moment. Um, so I was talking to, uh, uh, I serve on the board of a company and I was talking to one of the executives there and he was, uh, he was talking through this conversation that he was going to have in the next couple of days and we we're talking about how to do it. And then I said, okay, we'll do it. Go ahead, do it. I'll be the, I'll be the guy you're going to have the conversation with. Go ahead and do it. And he's like, okay, I think I would. I go, not like that. Like, don't break character. Don't break character and do it in character. And I'll play the other guy. What's his name again? Then I play the other guy and he has to go through his entire pitch with me without breaking character. 
Some people can't do this. They just like fall apart when you make them do this. They'll go like, they'll start their pitch and then they'll mess it up again. They'll mess it up and they'll go, oh, let me, let me start over. Let me, let me, let me, let me start over. It's like, no, like you don't really get to do that in real life. Like if you make a mistake, you either have to like acknowledge that mistake and keep going or keep going and kind of like the, the, the film reel is going. You don't get to like stop and go back. Don't break character. Um, and so that's really, really important advice for everything. You know, today I'm not doing that many sales calls. I certainly am practicing what I'm going to say on a call before I get on with an enterprise client. I have a prep call with people on our team. I try to figure out exactly like what the, the flow of the conversation is going to be. What am I trying to get out of it? And so I'll ask our team, like, what does success look like at the end of the call that I have with the CEO of one of your enterprise calls? What are you trying to get me to accomplish so I can figure out how to get there and make sure I make the proper asks? When I have hard conversations with my team, which I, you know, I want to have a lot of those because those give me an opportunity to give feedback and get people aligned and make sure that we're, we're all rowing in the right direction. I am practicing exactly what I'm going to say. And I'm thinking about how is that going to affect them? What are their drivers? What's important to them? Um, and I'm making sure that I'm articulating my words in a way that the feedback can not like blow you back, but like blow you back and then launch you forward. That's an ideal way to give feedback. And you have to really think about the words that you use and practice the way you're going to deliver them. I think people think, um, hey, Henry's the CEO, having tough conversations is like he just walks in on a Tuesday afternoon and he just like bing, bang, boom. He's just like great at it. But no, I am yeah. practicing all of those conversations before I have them. So was there a time where you were not so good at this type of preparation and practice? Like, can you tell us a story about a time where <laughs> maybe it didn't work out so well for you? <laughs> Yes. Um, well, you know, I learned this er lesson early on at iProfile when I had to go do that okay. first sales call. And I remember going and doing that sales call and the words, like I was very embarrassed at my performance <laughs> in that moment. And I also remember like him, I remember saying the words verticals and not knowing what the word verticals meant. I was 20 years old and he was like, okay, like, great. Like, so which verticals do you guys cover? And then I didn't know, like, I had no idea how to answer that question because I didn't know what the word verticals was or meant. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I walked out of that call, you know, number one, like frantically writing the word verticals down to look it up later. And then number two, going like, don't you ever go into a call like that again. Like, don't you ever walk into a call and not be prepared to answer those questions. Um, and so I'm always thinking about like, what are, what are people going to ask? How am I going to present? What am I going to say? So that I never come across like winging it. Nobody brings their best self when they're winging it. It's just not a good version of yourself. Um, and so I'm always trying to make sure that I put in some preparation Oftentimes when I get most frustrated with myself or frustrated with my schedule or frustrated with the way I spend my time, it's because I know I'm showing up to meetings not as prepared as I could be and as a result, not bringing the best version of myself. And that's a really frustrating feeling to have 
And so where I can find it, I am finding time to prep my talk track and understand my audience so that I am bringing the best version of myself as I can. Yeah, it sounds like the that moment at iProfile, that's kind of burned into your memory almost. It, it seems like where you're like, that feeling sucked. That's not yeah. going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> that feeling sucked. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, in, I had this moment with my board where you can over rotate on this a little bit. So mm-hmm. I had a moment with my board, um, where I told kind of my lead director, I said, look, when you guys ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I don't like to just guess at it. I would, and so I don't say anything or, or, or I don't provide a perspective to some like, uh, to some broader question you may ask at the board level, because I don't, I need to go back, make sure like my thoughts are backed by data that I'm not just telling you something that two clicks of a mouse later can be proven is not true. And he's like, look, 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 that's okay. Like just preface your response with, Hey, I'd like to go look at some data, but I would tell you, I think it's probably this. And you're closest to the business, Henry. We value your opinion. We know you're a smart guy. We want to hear your opinion. So don't be embarrassed to share it as an opinion. Just preface it with this is your opinion. And so I think like that's an area where I was like, no, I'm never going to go and say something that I haven't like had done pre-work on that could later be like, well, Henry's just one of those guys who just says whatever comes to his mind. Um, and so learning that little, just a little tweak, right? Hey, I don't know exactly the answer, but what I think you would find if we go look at the data is X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, is a super powerful tweak that puts you at ease, doesn't shave away your credibility, but still lets you provide your opinion, which is oftentimes kind of good enough for what people are looking for without, you know, without chipping away at your credibility, uh, if it's not backed up by data. Yeah. This conversation is really interesting to me, this topic, because, you know, as you get into larger mid-market enterprise type sales, where you are interacting more with executives, this type of business acumen is super important. Act like an executive, you know, kind of thing. Is there anything that, um, do you interact with many salespeople actually these days? Do you take sales calls? Yes, here and there. Like a couple times a quarter for sure I'll be on some kind of sales call. Is there anything that and, sale Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 no. ask the question. I was, is, is there anything that being on the receiving end as a prospect that if are there things that you can think about in the last year or whenever that has uh, impressed you? And then also something that was like, oh, God, I just, this is a waste of time. Cause I think that's a good perspective yeah. for salespeople listening this to this, uh, to be thinking about. Definitely. Look, I think that when I show up to a sales call, I'm really there to learn. Um, I'm there to learn like what the solution does, how it's going to be able to help us, who else it's helped, who's best in class in the area of it. Um, And so when I show up to those calls, what I really want on the other end of the line is teach me something. 
Like teach me something I don't know. Teach me something about my business. Teach me something about a business that looks like mine, that's at scale that you've helped before that we can get better at. Tell me how it drives results. And if the person on the other end can't really have that conversation, that's really frustrating for me because I, you know, what else am I going to get out of that call? I'm really just there to learn. And so this is a great opportunity for you to teach me something that I just don't know. Um, we're obviously not working with your company because we don't know something that you know. <laughs> and you may know like, hey, if you optimize this area of your business, you'll have better results with your clients. Or if you optimize this area of your business, you'll increase net retention. Or if you optimize over here, you'll get through security reviews faster and easier. So tell me that. And so when a sales rep can't have that conversation with me, that's that's not a great uh, that's not a great outcome. Now, if they've done their job well enough, they have built up a whole bunch of internal champions for them where like, I'm not gonna, it would be, it would be really rare that after a meeting that you bring me in for sign off that I blow the deal up, but it may make you do a bunch of extra work. Cause if I walk away from that call and I go like, yo, I don't, they couldn't even ask answer a basic question. And then now every all your champions have to go to bat for you. And then they're going to have to reprove the use case for me. The deal probably still gets done. It gets elongated um, and puts a bunch of extra work on your plate. But uh, I would show up to a call with a, with a senior executive ready to teach them something they don't know. And the best yeah. ones will be really appreciative of that. Yeah. Do you have an example of what something like that might be? Because there, this word insight gets me thrown you around a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let me give you a bad example. Um, I was I was at a I, I sat in on a call the other day, uh, and I asked the person who was pitching us something in the learning and development realm. I said, "Hey, who does this in a best in class way? Who does this in a best in class way that I can go?" look at and learn from and, you know, copy, right? Um, people are in different stages of their journeys than we are. If someone's like eight clicks ahead of me, rather than like go through the eight clicks myself and make the same mistakes, can I just like start where they are and then we can make the next set of mistakes together? Um, and he said, you know what? I've talked to your team. Your team, you guys are actually best in class on this thing. It's like, oh, it's such a disappointing answer because it's basically yeah. telling me there's nothing for you to learn from this call. Like there's just yeah. nothing else for you guys to learn. You can figure out how to innovate from here on your own, but we can't even think of someone who's doing it better than you. So there's no like special insight for me to share here. Um, and that's not a great situation to be in. I also had a call. I also had a call with a senior executive at a big consulting firm, and he asked for the call. We were in the middle of an engagement. Came to the call, and I said, "And I said, okay, like, uh, so, so tell me, tell, tell me something. Tell me why we're here." It was a thirty-minute call, and he never, he never said anything. He just like said a lot of words that never actually gave an insight or gave me something to do in the business, or gave me a mm -hmm. takeaway. I need a takeaway from those calls. You know, like when we're going to sit on the phone and talk to each other for 30 minutes, 
Give me some tangible thing that I can take away and think about how do I apply it to my business? What do I do with that piece of information? How do I get better? I Everywhere I go, I bring like a notebook just like this. And I write down yeah. like a tremendous amount of notes to every meeting. And then I circle things that I that are like dawn on me in the meeting or an interesting moment in the meeting. And at the end of every week, I go back with my chief of staff and I say, let's go through the week of uh, notes that I had. And I'm going to go through each thing that I circled because there is an action item for me to do inside the business. And it could be as simple as like, here's one uh, in my book, have Snay make videos. Snay is our VP of platform and integrations. And we do all of this really interesting stuff from a data orchestration perspective and an enrichment perspective, but they're very sophisticated use cases. And I don't, and, but they're very sophisticated use cases that solve very simple problems. And I don't think we do a particularly good job of making like bite-sized videos that show what you can do with this. And so yep. in this meeting, I that dawned on me, like we should probably go do that. And I circled it. And then at the end of the week, I send an email to Snay and a number of other people that says like, hey, make sure you go, you know, make sure you guys go make a bunch of these videos. Um Here's one in the next page. Put the AM and CSM in the platform. I had a conversation with a client or a client sent me an email that said, it's like impossible to figure out who like my AM is and my CSM. It's changed like three times. I have nowhere to figure it out. I got to write my old AM, wait for him to respond and tell me who my new AM is. It's kind of like this really broken process. And it's like, okay, number one, I realized we resegment and shuffle accounts during the year. So that can happen. And there are really valid reasons for that happening. Um, and then number two, I realized like, well, how, how is he supposed to figure out who his account manager is? There's no, we don't list it in the platform. Um, and so I wrote down, like, make sure we list account managers and CSMs in the platform, put it front and center. So everyone can just figure out who their account manager is. So they could be little things, they could be big things, but I'm constantly in a conversation looking for some takeaway that can help make our business better. And so give me one of those. Could be anything. You can tell me like, here's yeah. what Uber did, you know, and maybe that'll spark something that makes me think of something that we could do. But I am looking for something that I can apply in my business. And frankly, for me, and I may be different than other executives, but for me, the more tactical it is, the better. Something that I can actually go take and move the needle immediately is valuable. Yeah. This is, again, I think it's really insightful to hear this because people sell to a lot of folks like you, right? That are like yep. this and they don't really think about this kind of thing. And when we first met, this is the thing that really stuck out to me about you is you, you're, you're an incredible listener. Like you're constantly like, taking stuff in. <laughs> and I was really nervous before the first call we, we met too. I was like, you had a little bit I of research. You, Jason. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> but uh, I was like, uh, I better have something to share. And, you know, we talked about a lot of different, you know, kind of marketing stuff and videos and, you know, that sort of thing. But um, that did really stick out to me though. That, like you were taking notes and I do, interact with a lot of people, whether they're clients sometimes where I'm like, dude, are you freaking paying attention right now? Like what's, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, you seem very tuned in. Um, is there anything I, I, I want to continue with the, like the week of notes thing is a really cool 
kind of part of your workflow, it sounds like. Are there other things like that that you do throughout the day or week that you feel like are keystone habits to keeping you on your A game, keeping sharp, like that kind of stuff? You know, it's just going to be like a somewhat cliche. I I exercise every day. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really powerful thing to do. Um, And it just makes me feel like a different person in my body. 30 minutes. I'm not like a, you know, I have a, I'm not like a super workout guy, but I'm getting 30 to 35 minutes in every day, just running some like pushups and sit-ups and I'm good to go. And I feel like a different person on those days. Uh, and a lot of people will tell you, I bet a lot of people listening to this podcast go like, yeah, it must be nice to be the CEO and find time to like work out every day. Like you can go in whenever you want. The reality of the situation is I struggled a lot to make time for exercise and the weight of the business and my commitment from a time perspective to the business weighed on me a lot. Um, And so I was like, well, if I go exercise, that means like I'm not getting in until like 930 and that's not like a great look. And, you know, I'm not sure I want to like use the time that way. I talked to an executive coach uh, and he said, Henry, you've told me so many times that on the days that you exercise, you're far more productive you're far more focused and you're better at your job. Do you still agree with those things? Yeah, I agree with those things. Great. Um, Then why aren't you just viewing exercise as an investment into your work? It's just an investment into your work. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could really, I could wrap my head around just exercise being an investment into my productivity at work. And it is, it absolutely is. Um, And so I'm doing that. I sat in, I'm, I'm kind of jumping the shark a little bit here. So, uh, I, I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago and a guy who presented his name, Sean Aker, he has a Ted talk about, uh, happiness, but it's called the, he wrote a book called the happiness advantage. Great book. Turns out, have you read it, Jason? Uh, I'm in the middle of reading it. Yeah. You're in the middle of it. It's pretty fantastic. And it's such a cool concept because basically what it says, and it's backed by tons and tons and tons of research. And Sean Aker is a researcher at Harvard. And what it says is that people who are happier outperform their peers consistently, just no question about it. And so if you're happier, you outperform your peers. That's fine. You know, people go like, well, okay, well, how am I supposed to be happy? I'm busy. I'm doing all this stuff. But then he lays out like five or six things that you have to do to be to to basically change your brain into um, seeing the world, perceiving the world a little bit different. It doesn't mean like just not seeing negative situations. It just means reacting to those negative situations in different ways. And so one of the things that it says it's that you should do, which is, I think, really fascinating, is gratitude journal, which, okay, people have been talking about gratitude journaling for a while. But here's the powerful point about it. It says, every day, spend three minutes just thinking about the last 24 hours and writing down meaningful experiences that happened in the last 24 hours that you're grateful for. And they don't have to be big. It's the last 24 hours. So not many, that many big things happened. One of mine over the last few days was I got to walk to my house after a dinner. It was like a mile long walk. It was a beautiful day. I really enjoyed that walk. And I wrote it down. The key thing about this is after 21 days of 
gratitude journaling, doing this for 21 days, your mind creates a background application that just that just does this scanning in real time. And so now you don't have to spend those three minutes to get down your gratitude. You still should, but your mind's now been programmed to scan the world in front of you to find those moments that you're grateful for and you become a happier person. And as a result, you're more productive. You're, the people around you are more engaged. You're a better professional. And it seems to me like of all the things I do to get an advantage, right? How hard I work, how much I read, how much I try to study that, well, if I just made myself happier, I could be happier (laughs) and unlock this huge productivity advantage. It's like maybe the dumbest thing not to unlock. And there's all this research that says that it really does unlock a real productivity um, advantage. And so- I'm like all in on this thing now and I'm going to, I'm following the steps. I'm on day like seven at this point. Um, and so, and, and, you know, it includes like meditating for five minutes. Exercising is obviously on the list. Gratitude journaling, writing two minutes of just your thoughts, but it's like, Hey, if I can be happier and as a result, be a better executive, like who doesn't want that? And it actually feels yeah. like there's science behind getting that done. So I think that's a major hack that people should pay attention to. I love that. I'm going to make an assumption here, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming there are times where you maybe don't feel like working out in the morning or don't <laughs> feel super motivated or pumped up about like, what do you do when that happens? Yeah. So my, my, my daughter, I have a six-year-old daughter. Uh, the other day she called me, she has ballet on Thursdays and she told me she doesn't want to go to ballet. She's like playing with her dolls. And I was like, okay, well you have to go. So She's like, but daddy, I'm doing this thing. I go, Grace, days you don't want to go are the days where you become great. You have to go on the days that you don't want to do things. Um, That's probably not enough to get you into the gym in the morning because it just doesn't feel like a big enough reason. Basically, what what, what happened for me with exercise is I really started paying attention to the way that I felt on days that I exercised versus days that I didn't. And once I saw the difference between the way that I felt on an exercise day versus a non-exercise day, that was motivation enough to get over myself in the morning when I didn't want to do it. Because I went like, no, 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 no. Get in there. Just 30 minutes and you don't have to deal with feeling the way you would feel on a non-exercise day the whole rest of the day. So just get in there and do your 30 minutes and you've made a major investment for the next 12 hours of the day. Um, And I think once you start being able to see and feel the difference between an exercise day and a non-exercise day, that was for me enough. I would just go like, I don't really want to. And then the next most immediate thought in my head was, do you really want to feel the other way all day? And I'd be like, nope, I do not want to feel the other way all day. And that was enough to go. So self-talk, it sounds like, is a big, big kind of thing yes. for you. Do you, is this something you think about in other areas of your you know, personal or professional life? Like, do you think about your self-talk? Do you try to work on your self-talk? Like how, I'm just trying to get in your head here in terms of yeah, yeah. some of the um, you do some, you've done some very crazy things <laughs> in your career and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, being the CEO of a large company like zoom info, uh, I just, I've never really asked anyone this, I guess. I'm just kind of curious. 
Yeah, like I, I think self-talk is very important. I do believe that the way you see the world is oftentimes just whatever's in between your ears. You know, what mm-hmm. what you see in the same situation as someone next to you could be vastly different because of the way you talk to yourself and the way you um your, you know, the self-talk that you're te- the narrative you're telling yourself about the situation. I think um in very stressful situations. The my only uh, release valve is to talk out loud to somebody that I really trust about the thing that's stressing me out, and yeah. when I do that with, uh, I, I can do that with my wife. That one's you know super easy. I can do that with my uh, a handful of my executive team that I can pull aside and say like, hey, here's this like thing that's making me really nervous or anxious or I'm stressed about. Getting it out into the world and having somebody else give you their reaction of it is, it is like cathartic. There is this, uh, there is this, do you watch um, Succession? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I I binge watched that. As soon as I started watching, I was like, oh, this is good. Yeah, so there is this this scene where um, the son who's fighting his dad, basically, is they're on vacation and he has been beating himself up for months and months and months about this car accident where somebody, he basically killed somebody. And yep. he's wit- he finally is like breaks down from this because his father is basically hanging it over his head. And um, his siblings, he tells his siblings and his brother goes, basically casts it in a different light. And... When he casts it in a different light, that you could see just like the relief that comes off of that. And I think when you tell people out loud the thing that you're most stressed about, and they're able to like hear it and react in a like in a more positive way than you are because you're so wrapped around this thing, it's really powerful to have that experience. So Find the person you like to talk to who has a good perspective and say the things that are most anxiety creating or stressful out loud. That's really a powerful way to get over them. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of asking for help too, which I don't know about for you. That has been a struggle in my life up until very recently. (laughs) You know, just not just being really stubborn about trying to just work through stuff myself. I that's how I did it. Totally. You know, in my early adulthood and childhood, that's how I got through a lot of things. <laughs> you know, it just kind of myself in my head. Yeah, you know, I'm and I'm fairly yeah. introverted too. You know, so I don't know. Is there ever a, a learning curve at all for you and just asking for help or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, I still miss this, right? Like in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. the things that I get most stressed and anxious about are things that I view as solely my responsibility in the company, right? Like uh, that I don't want. I don't want other people to be to I don't want to bring other people in on it because I view it as my responsibility to do and that bringing like one of my other executives into my problem the thing that I'm responsible for is like unfair to them. Hey, it was my job oh, wow. to to deal with this and now I have to like the idea of then going and taking my job to somebody else and asking them for help is was always very hard. Amazingly, I have such a great team. When I say it out loud to them, uh, they're always just like they're already in the in the like bunker with you, 
And so yeah. like, it's not like they're like, oh man, now I got to deal with your problem. They're just like, okay, this is how we deal with it. And it's like, okay, that's great. Like, it's so great to hear that, you know, we're, those moments for me make it most clear that we're a team. You talk a lot about being a team, right? We're a team, we're a team, we're a team. If you want to really feel like a team, bring one of these problems to somebody who's most close to you and you'll realize really quick, like that they already are in the bunker with you. They already are in the trenches with you. They're already like there figuring out those things or thinking about those things with you anyways. And so those are great. Those are my favorite moments where I'm so stressed out, so anxious. And it's always around something that I feel is my sole responsibility to own. And now I've like had to bring somebody else in on it is those moments that you feel most camaraderie with the team around you. I love that. I want to ask you about accountability. Is there anything that you do to create accountability in your life for yourself? You mentioned a coach before. I don't know if you work with coaches or any of that kind of stuff, but how do you think about accountability? And uh, Jason, give me an example of like something I would be thinking about accountability around. Well, I mean, (laughs) so you're a publicly traded company, obviously, so everything is very public. (laughs) But I think around certain business KPIs or certain things that you need to follow through with and do... And a really, really kind of simple version of that would be you know, the exercise thing you know, that we talked about and following yeah. through with that. Is there any kind of stuff that you think about around you know, creating that kind of accountability for yourself or if at all, if that's even something you think about? Yeah. So first of all, we as a publicly, as a publicly traded company, even as a company with the private equity investors before we were public, we are at the beginning of the year telling them like, here's who we are today. Here's who we're going to be at the end of the year. Yeah. Here's who we're going to be at the end of the first month, the 10th month, the 11th month. And so that builds in a layer of accountability for the entire year because we're going to go back at the end of each month and say, here's how we performed. Here's how we performed. Here's how we performed against the plan. And so internally, we're meeting as a group monthly to do monthly operating reviews to talk about how we're progressing against the plan, where we're falling down, where we're ahead, how to get better in every area of the business. And I do a lot of comparing against last year, comparing our efficiency against last year, comparing our growth rates against last year. There is no, in my opinion, there's just no excuse for not being better than we were a year ago. The number one thing that drives me like most crazy is that in an area that we atrophy in, we just can't atrophy in an area. When we get good at something, we need to stay good and get better at that thing. And so I'm always looking for areas that I, that I can compare year over year, everything from sales efficiency to marketing spend to leads generated to um, product velocity and engineering velocity. This is a great example. My CTO who's an amazing partner and very, very good at his job. When we first, and he came from an acquisition. When we first met, he would go like, Henry, he's Israeli. Henry, we have the number one most efficient engineering team in the world. It's like, okay, Nir, but like, I can't like go tell analysts this with like literally no (laughs) like data point or, you know, like what am I going to do with that data? Like it actually makes me feel less confident that you're telling me that because there's nothing to go prove it. And so for months I went like, just 
prove it to me. Uh, prove it to me. Show me velocity. Just show me what we were doing last year from a velocity perspective and show me what we're doing this year. And he's like, you don't understand engineering. That's not how we do it. That's not how engineering works. It's like, well, I understand business and that's how you do it in business. You show me how good you were last year and you show me that you're better than that this year. Show me how good you were last quarter. You show me that you're better than that this quarter. So over months, we basically built out a a view of tracking velocity team to team, platform to platform, month over month over month. Now I can see very clearly, are we improving velocity versus last year? Are we delivering more software? Are we delivering not just more software, but more software pro rata? So for each additional person that we're adding, are they all driving efficiency in the same way that we were last year? Are we all delivering more product that way? And then I do the same thing on product management because product management goes like, oh, you know, the, the ideal headcount to engineering should be like four to one or three to one or seven to one, whatever it is. And we're like, not that. So we need to invest more in product management. Great. What am I going to see from a velocity perspective? When I make that additional investment in product management, what am I going to see from a software delivery perspective? And how are you going to sh- set it up to show me that we're getting a return on that investment? That's how I think about every single part of the business and every single investment we make. It doesn't make sense to make an investment if you can't show me the return on that investment. And and that can be from a headcount. It could be from a new hosting plan, a new piece of software, a new area that we're going to focus in. I want to know what that return is going to look like. And I want you to commit to it for us as a company. And then you tell me how we're going to track it. And sometimes you don't have like... um, data that feeds off of a system to do this. You have to think out of the box. And in a lot of those instances, someone will tell me like, well, um, we're not going to be able to tell you with data that this is actually improving. That's never true. Most of the time, I just tell them like, okay, well, I'm sure we could do with a survey. If we think that doing happy hours and uh, a sales kickoff or, you know, some other kind of a soft touch thing is going to drive, you know, employee experience and employee experience drives engagement, less attrition, blah, blah, blah. At least show me the first part. Go run a survey to a bunch of employees, ask them about how they feel about engagement, do all those investments, and then come back to me three months later, run that same survey and tell me if it changed. Like you can experiment a lot uh, one time. (laughs) You can't experiment a lot over and over and over if it doesn't show like some kind of return or you can't show that it is actually doing the thing that we we sought for it to do. And you can track all of that. Um, And so I'm always looking for a trackable way to show that the investments we're making are uh, are turning a return. This is really interesting. Is there, just to continue kind of on that, are there any mental models or things that you do or tools or anything like that when you're making really hard decisions about stuff? Is there anything that you do that? Yeah. I write memos. um, Okay. And I learned this from TA. TA was our first, first investor in the business. Um, And they would write memos and they were like investment memos and everybody would sit around and read these memos. They were super thoughtful. And I was like, okay, well, I want to, I want to do that too. And, um, in law school, they do teach you how to write pretty good memos. Essentially they call them briefs, but it's basically just a memo that outlines your points and tries to think through what the other side's points are. 
I had a professor early on who would tell me like, you know, when I would write these memos, I would sit down and I'd go, okay, I'm going to write the memo. Uh, and, and it, I'm going to write this memo arguing it this way. So I'm going to take the plaintiff side instead of the defendant side. And you go like, oftentimes I get halfway through the memo and I realize like, ah, the defendant is actually right, not the plaintiff. Yeah. And I switch the side of the memo and I write it as the defendant basically. And so anytime we're doing M&A, especially, we're going to make a strategic investment somewhere. Uh, we're going to lay out what our strategic goals are for the year. Uh, I write a memo that outlines like, here's our, you know, we're going to make an acquisition of Chorus. Um, and here are the reasons, here are the reasons why. And when I write the reasons why, I'm thinking about uh, the reasons why not to. So it's a little bit of like a pros cons. Here are all the reasons to buy Chorus. Here are all the reasons we shouldn't buy Chorus. Um, and I lay all those out as coherently as possible. And you can kind of see at the end of that why it makes sense to make the decision or not. Or, you know, the best part of it is no one gets to look at me and pretend like I didn't think about the cons. Like I did. I did think about the cons. They're all right here. These are all the reasons not to do it. I think they're outweighed by the pros. And then we have a plan to mitigate against the cons in the, in, in, once the acquisition happens. But I don't want someone to look at you know my recommendation to acquire Chorus and go like, he's just ignoring all the downside. It's like, no, like I'm not yeah. ignoring all the downside. I'm gonna be really transparent about those things. Um, and so in all of those kind of big, big decision points, I'm writing as complete and cohesive of a memo as I can. And that's hard to find time to do. And I'm not the like fastest writer, um, but I will carve out like a little bit of time every day for a couple of weeks to get like a fully fledged memo written, all my thoughts down and organized. And then I share that with the entire executive team and the senior management team. So they know this is why we did this thing or we're going to do this thing. Yeah. It sounds a lot like there are bits of the Socratic method, you know, in there too, Totally, where you're God, it sounds so basic, right? But <laughs> I just, you know, in, in my business, which is much smaller than Zoom Info, <laughs> it's uh, there are those decisions you got to make that are kind of big financial decisions sometimes. And I would make those decisions from such an emotional place sometimes where uh-huh. I was just so excited about something, you know. And my wife, Sarah, she's because uh, I, I dropped out of college and she's got the private education, grew up in a Westchester, you know, a top 10 public school in America, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. She got like, they taught her the Socratic method in like middle school. You know what I mean? I never, I never got taught that yeah. in my town of 5,000 people. Um, but she brings a very kind of analytic, you know, kind of way of thinking about it. That's like, how can we be more objective here? Um, is there anything else that you think about with decisions to try to come from a more objective place? Or do you ever catch yourself yeah. actually really emotional about stuff and like what do you, what do you do to kind of get grounded yeah so i'll give you uh, an example recently i had to go to the board to get our equity packages approved and um when i went to the board to get our equity packages approved i knew that there were a number of places they were going to poke at me at and uh and i remember the meeting was the next day and I knew I was going to like go to dinner, I was going to go to bed, and then I was going to wake up in the morning and I was going to have back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings and run straight into that meeting. And I wasn't prepared. Um, 
And I was, we were reading a book to my daughter. This is a great work-life balance point, by the way, but I was, we were reading a, a book to my daughter. And while I was reading the book to my daughter, I got like really nervous because I realized like I was not prepared for this meeting that was going to come at me the next day. So we finished reading. I went to the kitchen and we're like about to cook dinner. My wife walked over and I was like, okay, listen, I have this meeting tomorrow. I'm not prepared. And this is what they're going to say. And, th- and I don't know the answers to it. And I started talking about it, uh, you know, out loud. And, and, uh, and so what I was able to do by talking, talking about it is really go, okay, here, here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, you just told us this and that you just told us that and this. And then this equity package looks very different from the things that we just knew. And she was like, okay, so why did you change it? Okay, well, because of this and because of that and because this changed and that changed and this is new and that's new and they don't understand this part yet. She's like, obviously, once you explain what's in your head to them, they're going to support you because they just don't know those things. (laughs) And I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. So I wrote it all down. I went to that meeting and I went like person by person by person by person and said like, hey, here are the reasons, here are the reasons, here are the reasons. And the board was like, yeah, okay, those all make sense. Great. Thank you for doing this for us and bringing us back up to speed. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you walk into, you, you can do another thing, right? You could walk into that meeting and go, you know what? Who do they think they are? I mean, here running this business every day. It's one of the most valuable software companies in the country. Like, just give me what I ask for. And like, move away. Like I already, why do I even have to come to this meeting and justify the things around equity? I'm already being like very considerate about what I'm asking for. These are our, you know, key people in the company. Just sign the thing and let's go. You could go that way. Here's a, it's like a self-talk thing. You just don't need to be a martyr in all of these weird, these situations. Like my, what my wife said, which was like, as soon as they understand what's in your head, they're going to support you. It's just like a much better way to think about the world. And it is my obligation to bring them along with that. And so as long as I go into those situations and I go, okay, don't go negative here. You don't need to. It's just not necessary. They just want to hear how you're thinking about things. That I talk to my executives about all the time. They'll say, Cameron, my CFO, Cameron just doesn't. He's never supportive of these things. I go, okay, well, why do you say that? Well, when, when we presented to him, he, he asked this and he asked that, he asked this. And I was like, well, it just sounds like Cameron's trying to understand how you made the decision, like how you came up with the, the reasons why you were making this, uh, making this ask. It's not when you ask questions and for clarifications, it's not you saying that you don't trust the person's decision. It's you saying you want to understand it and wanting to understand how someone makes a decision is very different from not believing they make good decisions. (laughs) And I think if you can believe that it's really powerful. Yeah. I love that. Oh man. I could talk to you for like another hour, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) um, this has been super great. I love like you really opened up about a lot of stuff. I appreciate you doing that. Um, before you take off here, because we didn't talk a ton about, you know, Zoom info and the culture and all that kind of stuff there. Um, for someone that's considering working at at Zoom info, 
what are some of the important things that they might need to know about like what what you guys expect from from someone and the culture and what's really important to you guys? Yep. So I went around uh, at the beginning of the year and I did multiple roundtables with our employees because I wanted to understand why they came to work here. And what I was hearing from HR and a number of other places, particularly around our millennial workforce, is they, they just care about like mission and purpose and they want like environmental sustainability and all of these like you know, a number of these other things. And I was like, you know, is that true? Like, because we're just a software company. Do they really come here because of like envir- our ESG efforts? Which, you know, we have ESG efforts, but like yeah. it just doesn't, doesn't land for me. Um, yeah. And so I went and I had these conversations. And what I found was nine out of 10 people came to work at Zoom Info because they wanted to grow. They wanted to grow professionally. They wanted to grow personally. And wherever they were at before, they felt like they stopped growing. They stopped learning. They stopped growing. And as a result, they stopped making an impact on the businesses that they were at. And they just wanted to feel growth again. And they believed that Zoom Info would give them that growth. Nine out of 10 of them over and over and over again. And then I extended the roundtables outside of millennials to more senior executives. And I asked them that question. They all said exactly the same thing. Growth, 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 growth. Um, the one out of 10 who didn't say growth were in sales and they said money. <laughs> and so that's some type of growth, but they said, I came here because I wanted to make more money. Um, great. I'm totally cool with that too, by the way. But as a result of those conversations, I made it very clear throughout the organization that we were going to invest in people's growth. We're going to invest in training and professional development. We're going to invest in coaching. And we want everybody to, we want to deliver on that promise. If you came here to grow, I want to make sure that you absolutely feel like you've grown when you've been here. As a result, last year, we, we, we uh, invested 80,000 hours of training and professional development to our employees. We, we have more than two and a half times the career mobility at Zoom Info than our software peers. That means you're promoting and moving your jobs internally at Zoom Info uh, 250% faster than another software company. And so we're super committed to that. The second thing that everybody says, everybody says, even though the one out of 10 salespeople, when you ask them two weeks after you started here at Zoom Info, what was the what was the most surprising or interesting thing that you learned about the company? Everybody says it moves way faster than any company I've ever worked at before. I people told me this moved fast, but I never appreciated how fast it actually moved. And so, you know, we move fast, we grow our employees, it's a great place to work and we pay pretty darn well and have great benefits packages. And so I think that makes this a pretty great place to be. No, I love it. And I know we got to take off here. Besides going to zoominfo.com, where can people go to you know, check you out and check out what Zoom Info is up, up to? So you could email me. I'm just henry.chuck at zoominfo.com. If you're in Zoom Info, you have that. Um, I'm obviously on LinkedIn and Twitter. Twitter, I'm Henry L. Shuck. Um, Zoom Info, uh, you can find us on our careers page, which is just zoominfo.com backslash careers. Um, and you know, we'd love to hear from you.